the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, prophecy of Habakkuk. I'm going to read from chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigonioth. Probably that term is either literally a musical term. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. O Lord, renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot, Selah. With his own spear you pierced his head, when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decray crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Amen. I'm going to look at this passage. Um, Maybe I could ask Stephen to avoid me drinking the communion wine beforehand. Could I get a glass of water? (laughs) I don't know what's happened. It's just disappeared. Um, I want to look at the... The last verses are magnificent, but I really want us to look from verse 3 to verse 15. There's a kind of sandwich in here. The first part where Habakkuk stands in awe of God, and the second part where he says no matter what happens, he is going to trust God. Um, I want us to look at God coming to us. Now, I don't know if any of you saw Darren Brown's program, the atheist musician Darren Brown, didn't say that he was an atheist, but he is, Um, he set up a program whereby he got somebody to go to America to train to be a faith healer, stroke, um, charismatic evangelist, and so on. And it's very, very, very disturbing, actually. Assuming that it's not all faked, it's extremely disturbing to see what goes on sometimes in the name of Christianity. And there are an awful lot of people who are disillusioned because they desperately want to see the power of God and to feel the presence of God. 
And then they discover that a lot of what is called that is faked. And it, it, does, it causes people to be very cynical and very hurt and very wounded. Now, I believe with all my heart that God obviously does come, that he does speak, that our faith is not dead, that it's not just ritual and so on. But we are also very prone to being misled. How do we know when God is present? How do we know whether it's not just being hyped up? And I think that as we look at the scriptures, we can be encouraged in that. Habakkuk, just to give you a little bit of background, in in this passage, he's a prophet who is coming and he's talking of God coming in judgment to save his people. Now, we find that difficult. God coming in judgment to save two ideas, judgment and salvation, which appear to be contradictory. At his time, there was a nation called the Chaldeans who were being used by God to punish Israel. And Habakkuk talks about that, but he also talks about the judgment that will come on the Chaldeans themselves. In the whole of the the book, the message is really that in the midst of trouble and judgment, the righteous will live and will survive the crumbling of the different empires. Now, we live in a world which today is great, isn't it? I mean, you can go out uh, yesterday, I cycled down around the ferry and it was just brilliant and everything. You get up in the morning, you know. I mean, Scotland, who would have thought? Scotland in April, you can sit out in the garden and have breakfast. Okay, you have extra layers of clothing on, even with the sunshine, but you can do it. And it's beautiful, it's fantastic, and everything's all right with the world. But we live in a world where... That is mixed with things like tsunamis. It's mixed with things like war in Libya and earthquakes and tornadoes in the southern U.S., a a city that I've driven through many times, Tuscaloosa. Uh, A mile and a half wide tornado just ripped everything apart. And I was listening to three students being interviewed who said, we were okay in our basement, though our house collapsed, but the people next door, they all died. When a tree fell on their house, they all, the three fellow students, they all died, asking lots of questions. We live in a world where there are tornadoes. We live in a world where there is an economic meltdown and where, to some degree, there is a moral meltdown. Um, very few of you were here for the hustings, and it, we, we had a good time with the hustings. I was very impressed with all of the candidates, but I was left deeply discouraged at one level because I asked them at the end about how they would vote on the issue of um, redefining marriage. And every single one, every single one, without exception, said they would vote for it. And they gave reasons which indicated to me something that, that really quite horrified me. How deep the rot is in our society. Because they gave reasons that showed their thinking was shallow, that they didn't know what marriage was, And to even begin to try and address it and correct it with them would have been just way too difficult. Um, It was, to me, just an an astonishing answer that was given. And I was deeply discouraged by it because I just thought, 
we've become so unchristian in our thinking and our culture, we don't even realize it. Something that 10, 20 years ago, this, these very same politicians will all be saying, no, absolutely, no way, that will never, ever happen. We're now saying, well, of course, it's going to happen. And by the criteria with which they are thinking, of course it's got to happen. But it's the criteria with which they are thinking which really um, disturb me. So what do we do? What do Christians do when we are faced with all these kinds of things and when we ourselves may be faced with personal difficulties? We do what Habakkuk does. Two things. Firstly, we understand the ways of God in the past. I said two things. That's rubbish. I think it's more like 20, but we'll see see how far we go. This, how do we understand how God worked in the past? Habakkuk looks to the future by looking to the past. He talks about standing in awe of God's deeds. I have heard of your fame. Renew them in our day. He hadn't personally experienced them. If we want to see how God will act in the future, it's a really good idea to look at how he acted in the past. Because he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Note that as Habakkuk does this, he's doing so in the context of prayer. This whole chapter is really a prayer of Habakkuk. And he prays. An unusual prayer, because the word he uses for God in verse 3 is a, is a slightly different word. It's an older form that's used in the book of Job and vir- virtually nowhere else. Eloah, it means, or it is, and it means God is the creator and governor of the world, the one to whom all owe their existence, the one to whom all must show respect, and the one by whom all are controlled. Later on, he uses the more normal term of the Jewish people, Yahweh, or Jehovah, the God who is. He recalls a great event in the past, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. And what Habakkuk is doing is he's saying, God, you did this in the past, do it again. You did it in the past, do it again. I think it is important for us to recall and to think about what God has done in the past because we're too narrow. What we think about is what we experience and what we know and usually what we are experiencing just now. But we need a broader perspective to look at what God is doing throughout the world and to look at what God has done in the past and not to limit God to our personal experience. He comes from Timan and Paran, he said. He actually comes. Only the coming of the Lord can himself uh, provide genuine hope for his people. Timan and Paran, the reason they're important is God's people were in the desert. They were thirsty they were hungry they were homeless they were isolated they were under siege they were in danger and God came to his people I love reading church history I love reading about what God has done in the past and I think it is just tremendously important for us to do that because it reminds us of the character of the God with whom we have to deal so for example some of you uh, will have heard this week that David Wilkerson died. Now, those of you who know of David Wilkerson, if you don't know, you should get to know. Uh, David Wilkerson is an amazing man. There's a book called The Cross and the Switchblade, which I think, like many people here, 
was a very influential book. When you're, it's the kind of book you were always given as Sunday school prize. I think I've got five of them. Uh, it's, given. it's no wonder they sold 50 million copies because basically every kid brought up in an evangelical home had to be given it several times over. Um, what intrigued me about it as the book was its description of the gangs in New York. Um, and it was great because it was a book about violence and stuff I was allowed to read on a Sunday. Uh, that may be the wrong motivation. But um, it did have a big, big impact in lots of ways. And not least because you read these kind of stories and then you discover that the people have got feet of clay and then you discover that it's faked and so on. Well, David Wilkerson has remained consistent throughout his life. To listen to his preaching, just YouTube a, a couple of his sermons And you realize he's remarkably consistent. What happened, the story briefly was he went to New York because he saw uh, an an account of a trial where some young guys were being tried for murder and so on. They were drug addicts and in gangs and things like that. And he just thought, well, they need the gospel, so I'll have to go and take them the gospel. And he just went. And he had nowhere to stay and he had no money and he had nothing. And... um, God really, really blessed that work. And a man called Nicky Cruz, one of the most notorious gang leaders, became a Christian, and a number of others as well. Now, the story, and it's from that comes um, Teen Challenge and uh, other works from that. But what inspires me about just reading the story of David Wilkerson is not the story just of Nicky Cruz but just the story of how God used and how God blessed. And you think, well, if God did that before, why not uh, again? Yes, I can hear about people who are fakes. And I can see people who are fakes. And it's very, very disturbing. But just as that is disturbing, so it is great to have people to know of uh, reality and truth having worked out at other times and in other people's lives. There's a special clarity into the ways of God in the past. And that's what Habakkuk sees. It's what he asks for. He says, bring it back. Lord, do it again. Just read the account that McShane gives of this building being full. And if it doesn't move you, to me, uh, there's something really, really wrong. But then the second part of that is you understand the character of God. God came in his holiness and in his majesty. Verse 3, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. Exodus 15:11. who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? I've listened over the past two Saturdays to two men, Rob Bell and Brian McLaren, uh, inverted commas, discuss questions. Now, I have no problem with them discussing questions and thinking things through. But as I listened to them, I thought, where is your concept of the holiness and the glory of God? It's all about us. It's all about how we feel. It's all about the kind of God we would like. But Habakkuk doesn't begin with that, and he certainly doesn't end there. God is pure. God is holy. God is separate separate from everything that taints. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean. By any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. God's holiness is not biased. What I mean by that is God doesn't say, well, I'll just forget about that. And I'll accept that. And I like them, so I'll let them off with that. But I don't like them. 
God's holiness is absolute. He cannot tolerate evil full stop. And when we come into the presence of a holy God, it causes awe. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. When we see God at work, when we experience God at work, when God comes, there is a sense of awe and a sense of holiness. That's why when you're in a meeting or you're watching something or you're hearing of something and there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of language and there's a lot of talk about God and Jesus and the love of God and so on. But unless there is a sense of the holiness of God and the awesomeness of God, I doubt that you can genuinely say God is in this place. When God comes, there is real insight into the character of God. Simon Peter saw this. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. St. Peter said to the Israelites, you rejected the Holy One. We tend to think when God comes, when God comes in power, we'll be the guy standing at the door saying, thank you, Lord. Glad you turned up. Been waiting for a while. Whereas what will in reality happen as we grasp who God is, that we'll say, go away, Lord. I'm a sinful. This, look, this is way too heavy. This is way beyond what I expected. There's a real sense of something other Something awesome, something wonderful. He uses the word Selah at the end of verse uh, 3, which, if I was to translate that into modern lingo, would be basically it's a musical term that means crank up the volume. Um, it's just kind of more, please, give us more. And understanding the character of God, he, he just goes on to pour forth things, God's glory. Wherever you look, there is the glory of God, Psalm 8 and verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You go out and, uh, as I say, when I was cycling yesterday, I stopped and just looked at at the beach at the ferry and you would have thought you were in the med with all the people crowding around buying ice cream and even the ones trying to get a suntan. You just look and you look across to Tense Muir you, you see the glory of God in the sky, the glory of God in the waters. But Job says, that's just a fraction. It's just a fraction. The wonder of the creator is reflected throughout the realm. And we want God's glory to be present when we worship together. It's interesting. I know a number of Christians who say, you see, when it's a really good day on a Sunday, that's a day for me to go out into the mountains and see God's glory. Sorry, I won't be at church this Sunday. And I think... Yeah, but you should be able to see God's glory even more so when we are worshipping Jesus Christ. And it indicates to me something that's just wrong in, in the church as a whole when we don't perceive and grasp the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the reason that we are here. That is the primary reason we are here, that we would see Christ, we'd see him in his glory. And we would praise him. His praise filled the earth. It's not saying, Habakkuk's not saying that all the people are praising him, though that's what we want. But he's saying his glory is so evident and so awesome 
that all the people should praise him. I, a little bit mischievously on somebody's Facebook page, an atheist friend of mine had written about just wonderful sitting here again in the ferry. He said, I'm sitting here in the ferry watching the sunrise. And I said, it is wonderful, so you should praise the one who created it. And he wrote back, praise physics. Okay, it doesn't work. Logically, it doesn't work. Emotionally, it doesn't work. Intellectually, it just doesn't work. Praise physics. Yeah, right. No, where did the physics come from? I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. We praise him. His splendor. The stars, the glow of a fire at night, the sun, the dawn. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Exodus 24, verse 17. His splendor, he shone like rays. It was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Far more is concealed than is revealed. The brilliance of God's appearance also acts like a veil. It, it's, um, I've forgotten even the hymn, but I just remember the line. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. We imagine it's, 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 he's got this picture of a fist and he says there's rays coming from that fist, but you're not seeing what's in the fist. Imagine what is there. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. The light, by definition, has to be veiled. We don't see it all. We see just a glimpse. Can you look at the sun? No. But C.S. Lewis put it beautifully. We believe in the sun not because we see it, but because by it we see everything else. Imagine what a different perspective you and I would have if we saw through things through the light of Christ. And then three other things. God's judgments, God's presence, God's eternity. The plague and the pestilence, the ten plagues. Not saying that God necessarily created them, but that he uses them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague, to kill its men and their animals? The coming of the Lord is something that is truly awesome and is also destructive. I guess if I was in Tuscaloosa just now, I would understand a whole lot more of what that means. We're so puny. We're so pathetic. We think we are in control. We think... We can manipulate things and can manipulate God, but we can't. He's present like a giant striding over the earth. It describes using all this metaphorical language. He stood and shook the earth. He looks and makes the nations tremble. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. People's hearts melt. The self-confidence goes when the Lord looks upon us. I don't know how many times I've heard people say this, and it chills me to the bone. When I meet God, I'm going to ask him, why didn't you do this? I'm going to, no, you're not. You are going to ask God nothing. Absolutely nothing. When you meet God, your heart trembles and melts. And when we say we want God to come amongst us, it's not so that he can satisfy all the desires that we may have. What we are asking is his presence to come, his light to shine, which will show the darkness. 
And our self-confidence will disappear. Even the most permanent things shake the ancient mountains. His eternity. People like to go into the mountains and they say they've been here forever and they'll be here forever. No, they won't. They will not. Heaven and earth will pass away, says Jesus, but my words will never pass away. And then there are, in verses 8 to 11 and verses 12 to 15, I'll not go into them, but he talks about God the warrior and God the victorious deliverer. He talks about the deep and the rivers and the anger of God against sin. And the whole picture is one of awesomeness and majesty. The rivers are used uh, in prophetic writings as symbols of division and God judging. Revelation 16 verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to repair the way for the kings from the east. It's just a constant imagery theme within the Bible that there are these kind of horses of judgment and then the horses also of salvation. And God comes to deliver. Verse 12, you, 13, you came out to deliver your people. God marches out to deliver his people. We live in a world of conflict. We live in a world where there are rivers, if you like, of, of, of judgment and uh, of destruction. And yet that world is not being left to itself. Even those rivers are part of God's judgment and part of God's plan to save. And we see that in what we celebrate when we take communion, as we will in a moment, that God came in Jesus Christ. If, as Habakkuk saw, he looked to the past and he saw God came in glory and God came in power and God came in splendor and God came in judgment and it was just something so completely awesome. What about when God came in Jesus? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Peter 1.17 For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I love seeing all the beauty in nature but we don't worship nature. I love seeing all the beauty in nature because it does tell us something about God but it doesn't tell us about Jesus. And Jesus tells us more about God. There is a glory and there is a beauty in Jesus Christ which is a thousand times any sunset you will see. I, I keep going back to the words of Job. These are but the outer fringe of his glory. Speaking of the, the universe, the stars. The full glory of God is seen and reflected in Jesus and that's why we keep coming and we keep saying, Lord, show us Jesus. Now we'll see that even more when Jesus returns. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled among all those who have believed, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you.
we get glimpses of the glory of Jesus Christ. We see something of Christ in the creation through his word as we understand what he has done. And yet, if you went out after this morning and you went to people and said, can you see the glory of Jesus? They'll say, no, what are you talking about? They'll blaspheme. They'll be arrogant. They'll be pompous and self-righteous. They'll talk about religion. They have no concept of who Jesus is. And they'll say, you want to believe that's fine. But I don't. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Because one day you will. One day you will see his glory. And you won't do what Bertrand Russell said. was, When I meet God, I'm going to ask him, why didn't you provide enough evidence so that I could believe in you in the first place? Bertrand Russell will not say that. Because the answer to that is, God will say, I revealed my glory to you. In my son and what he did, and you refused to believe. You refused to accept it. When someone says, I can't see, I can't see it, I can't see it, there's no point unless their eyes are open. Describing what's there. They have to open their eyes. The glory of Jesus will be seen in his second coming. And the glory of Jesus is seen in his people. You know, we look, pa- we look back, we look forward, and even now, we can see the glory of Christ in his people. Colossians 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There is a reflection from Christ to his people. We talk about the radiance. Um, Going back to the cross and the switchblade, I don't know if you've seen the film. It's dreadfully 1970s kitsch. It really is. The music is atrocious. And Pat Boone playing um, David Wilkerson. Uh, is he playing David Wilkerson or Nicky Cruz? No, no, he plays um, David Wilkerson. I mean, he's got this kind of baby angelic face, you know, that's kind of every southern mum's evangelical, every evangelical southern mum's dream for their daughter. And you think, ah, it's just, you've turned it into a fairy story. That's... That's not how Christians are. We really do not walk around with a shining glow on our faces, normally. Um, And yet, there's something about this. How is the glory of Christ reflected in our lives? Only ever happened to me once. But somebody did come up to me in a railway station and said, You're a Christian, aren't you? I can tell. And I didn't have a big badge or carrying a big black Bible or anything like that. I said, how can you, how can you tell? I said, oh, it's just the look. I have no idea what she was talking about. But um, I don't know about the look, but there's got to be something of us reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We want to so see the glory of Jesus that we cannot but be like Moses, who when he came down from the mountain, his face shone. We reflect, says Paul, the glory of Jesus There are an awful lot of people who come to believe in Christ, not because they see Christ as in a vision or anything like that, but because they see Christ in his people. Why do you behave like that? Why do you act like that? Why are you different? God comes to us. He comes to us in Christ that we may communicate Christ to others. So we pray that God would be with us and God would come to us. And I long 
for uh, days and awareness of God being with us. You know, sometimes it happens. I, I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. Ever since I became a Christian, I've always gone to church twice on a Sunday, and I'll tell you why. Not out of a sense of duty, not because I think I'll lose brownie points, but it's just Murphy's Law as far as I was concerned. The one service I didn't go to would be the service that God turned up at, and there were great things happened, and I wasn't there. So I was just scared of missing out. That's the reason. And, and you know, apart from the positive reasons of wanting to be with God's people and wanting to hear God's word, it was always this sense of, we want, I know that God is present with his people, but I want to experience and, and just to know the, the joy and beauty of Jesus Christ as we worship and as we share together and to know that God is present. Now, sometimes we can know that individually. Sometimes we know it collectively. Sometimes it seems as though we go weeks and it's very dry, but we know that God is still with us, but we're just not sensing that. And then other times you walk out and you go, wow, that was just fantastic. Um, the other Sunday night when uh, Andrew was preaching, it wasn't just Andrew preaching, it was the whole service. It was one of those services that you just, you wanted to scream at people, everyone get in here, quick, 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 get in. Because God is present. And you're aware of that. And I'm not saying that everything else is worthless or pointless, but I'm saying that's what we've got to long for and what we've got to look for. That God's would be with us, that the glory of Jesus would be amongst us and would be seen in his people. And for that, we not only cry for God to come to us, but we have to come to him. Hebrews 12, I'll not read the whole chapter, but if you get a chance, please do. Hebrews 12 uh, from verse 18 says this, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched that's burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Isn't that fantastic? You could be in a church, there could be five of you, and you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a broad perspective. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word to us. We ask that you'd help us to see you are a consuming fire, but you come in purity and in love and in holiness. And we ask that you would come to us. We thank you that you've come to us in Christ. And we pray that each of us would see and know and reflect more and more the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. 
the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.